I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Don Bluth Animated Classics. This is a commissioned show sponsored by Matthew A. Siebert. And we were originally asked to just cover one of these films, but since all three are someone's absolute favourite, and they're also all fairly light, I decided a triple bill would best serve this body of work. With us, unusually, is Kat Esman, one of our top-tier Patreon sponsors who previously guested on our Red Dwarf Season 5 episode, who got very excited when she heard we were covering these. Hello, Kat. Hello. The story of Don Bluth is a long, inspiring, yet melancholy and conversely frustrating and depressing tale. He was born in 1937, the very year the Walt Disney Company nailed down what an animated film in the West would be throughout the 20th century. It was their first feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and when Don was a lad in El Paso, Texas, he would ride into town on his horse to watch it, or Pinocchio, or Fantasia, or Dumbo, or Bambi. And uh, in his own words, he then went home and copied all the Disney comics he had, just, you know, just practicing drawing. And later, the post-war second renaissance, beginning with Cinderella in 1950, would also be stuff that he watched. By the middle of that decade, though, he was working for Disney on Sleeping Beauty. And then something happened that I did not know about. He left his job as an animation assistant to John Lounsbury after only two years because he found it boring. And he opened up a theatre. I always assumed that he just stayed at Disney uh, for years and years and climbed the ranks, but he didn't actually return there until 1971, like 15 years after he started the first time. 16? He trained as an animator there and worked on Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, The Rescuers, and Pete's Dragon. Now, the key thing to note here is that this was the period in Disney's history we discussed a few years ago on our shows with Dan Floyd. It was after Walt's death in 1966, just prior to the release of The Jungle Book, but before The Little Mermaid in 1989. That was a 23-year period of malaise and lack of faith in themselves relative to the perceived titans of industry they were when Walt was around and now. If you watch the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, where Don is mentioned, you'll see an animation staff happy to goof around, acting like school kids being left to their own devices on a day their teacher is ill. But they also laboured under the prospect of never achieving greatness. And this clearly pissed Don off greatly. He negotiated with the company about the prospects of his making an animated feature with the independent short Banjo the Woodpile Cat as proof of his abilities. And he was laughed out of the room with the words, Even we can barely make a successful animated movie anymore. And in 1979, on his birthday, Don loaded up a truck with 11 of Disney's gross of animators. They had like 116. But they could not spare... 11 of them, and they drove off like Jerry Maguire to make their own company. For some reason, the halls of the Disney Animation Building always smelled faintly of swamp coolers and pencil shavings and old linoleum. rat's nest. Animation had been in this slow downward spiral for a long time, even since Walt Disney was alive. As veteran animators retired, new kids, mostly from the Disney-sponsored school, CalArts filled the hallways. Why, Ruben, you're from CalArts also, right? And who are you? 
Me? Yes. I'm John Lasseter. He's the cameraman. He's leaving in a little while. Could I show He's you some animation? Could I show you animation? This is animation. Could I flip something for you? This is it. Look at that. Peter Pan. Oh, looks up and... Oh. It's better than the magic we're making today, but we can't help that. Hi, Tim. This is Tim Burton, another one of our people here. Ron Miller knew that Walt's guys were retiring fast. He had to raise a new crop of animators, but he was cautious about it. He got burned five years earlier when he entrusted a charismatic animator named Don Bluth to lead the department. But Bluth polarized the animators. Some adored him as the messiah of animation, and others, well, others thought he was just another Walt wannabe. It was this interesting cross-generational thing where you still had a few of these legendary Disney um, artists who were now in their 60s and approaching retirement, and then a bunch of uh, young people in their 20s who were really, really excited and sort of passionate about this medium. Um, it was thrilling to learn from the masters, but there was a feeling like that somehow we could be making better films. Around that time, the studio did a survey that revealed a majority of teenage moviegoers wouldn't be caught dead near a Disney movie. We were just waiting, waiting for something, anything to happen. On Monday, we reported that Walt Disney Studios was on shaky financial ground because of its troubled film division and weak earnings from the Epcot Center in Florida. However, since that report, there have been dramatic developments. In just four days, Disney stock jumped 16%, topping off at around $58 a share. Analysts attribute the jump to two factors. Splash, the youth-oriented comedy about a mermaid in Manhattan, stunned Hollywood by racking up over $6 million in its opening three days. That's the best opening for any movie in Disney's history. Another surprise, the resignation of Roy E. Disney as chairman of the board. He's Walt's nephew and son of Walt's brother, the company's co-founder. The real heartbeat of this company was, is, and will always be the film business. Because from the film business comes the ideas that that then generate new things in the parks, new promotions, new, a kind of a, a sense of continuing newness about the company in general. And uh, when that began to fail, and I actually, somewhere along the line, began hearing things like, uh, well, they don't think they really want to stay in the movie business because it's not doing very well and we don't really even need it anyway. And that gave me all sorts of problems because I, you know, uh, I remember saying at one point, well, if you really think that way, then what you're doing is running a museum. Now, it's understandable that Disney would be furious, rightfully, with him poaching and decimating, in the very true sense, their talent and outright defying them like this. But one could also understand Dom being presented a resignation to mediocrity for the company that had previously shot for the stratosphere. He founded Don Bluth Productions, and from that point on, for several years, comprising the trio that we are talking about tonight, he and his team have been referred to as being Disney while Disney had forgotten how to be Disney. And their first film ever was The Secret of Nim. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. <laughs> and heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. 
I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. It's an odyssey to another world. A world of fantasy and enchantment. To what you see and hear, you must swear absolute secrecy. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. Do you like me? Of course I like you. It's I mean, a story of friendship. I mean, you don't think I'm clumsy or anything. What? I just need a few pointers to polish my style. I told you you'd love flying. I don't know how I let you talk me into this. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. If I had actually been near a cat, I'd be sneezing my brains out. I'm allergic to hay. Excuse me, pardon me. Where courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. Oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm, I'm not a turkey. Big no, buzzer, Discover the secret of Nim, and rediscover the child in us all. This is an adaptation of the 1971 children's novel by Robert C. O'Brien, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. This was a book which Disney had already passed on because it was too dark for them. This is before they decided to do The Black Cauldron. Don Bluth not only didn't think that kids should be shielded from darkness, it sometimes seems like he's going out of his way to obliterate us with sadness and grief. That's why this film, this first one in particular, reminds me a little bit of Watership Down, which we covered in, I think, 2017 it was when we talked about that. A very dark tale of anthropomorphic talking animals and their struggle with humans uh, and with each other. I recall getting hold of the novel in the library about the age of nine, having never seen the movie. But I did like the film still of Frisbee and Nicodemus on the front. I could imagine what the film would be. Because, you know, when you were a kid in the 80s and it was like, oh, there's a movie. You're like, okay, I'm nine. I can't get hold of that. Like, like it's either on TV or it's never on TV. And it was never on TV for us. The plot is a little convoluted. Frisbee is Brisby in the movie. We'll come to that in a minute, but it's exactly what you'd expect. The mouse mother is extremely worried about her third child, young Timothy, who is dying of pneumonia. Now, this didn't register on a conscious scale when I wrote a small boy named Timothy into Let Them Go, who died of pneumonia, shattering a family. I actually chose his name based on A Christmas Carol's Tiny Tim, but surely on some level my brain must have banked this heartbreaking possible scenario from A Secret of Nim. Frisbee's husband, Jonathan, was a laboratory mouse who escaped the National Institution of Mental Health, or NIM, with a group of the science-augmented super-smart rats, who are the titular characters. And Jonathan the mouse saved several lives before starting a family. And he perishes before the story begins, but it's his ghostly influence that's felt throughout the events, as a lot of rats regard his wife and children with reverence on his behalf. 
Their task, once she finds them, is to assist the Frisbees in moving house so they don't get destroyed by a farmer. There's a coup staged by an untrustworthy advisor, and in the book there was calamity. The film is much more accommodating for the young with medium threat and light outcome. That's that's important, threat versus outcome. I think we should really look at that in terms of scary stuff for kids and actual, this actually genuinely happened and now the characters have to either deal with it or, like Bambi, don't deal with it. The book was compelling to me, especially to someone who had already enjoyed the anthropomorphic but much lighter fare, uh, of Dick King Smith. He did The Sheep Pig, which became Babe. Um, the Fox Busters. What's another Dick King Smith? Saddlebottom. He liked pigs a lot. Mm. Uh, and while it was a lot more serious and a bit of a potboiler as the rodents face off against humans trying to exterminate them, I did not anticipate the ending. The ending of the book, their entire civilization is gassed, and Brutus, the guard with the spear that you see in the film, gives his life to save Mrs. Frisbee. This horrific and agonizing turn made it the first book that caused me to cry my eyes out, and this stuck with me. But I didn't see the movie itself until I was in my 30s, and that makes my experience of it very different from the kids who grew up with The Secret of Nim. So, that's another reason why we brought in Cat. What was your relationship with this film? Uh, this is one of those movies where I don't ever remember catching the beginning. It was one that I think it must have been on syndication a lot, just where I'm from. Mm-hmm. I always, I can very much remember like vignettes of this film mm. as like a little kid. I remember being terrified of the rats. Um, I remember being terrified of Nicodemus, which in hindsight is silly because he they they establish immediately that he's not a bad guy. He's yeah. just he got creepy hands. But yeah, he's got creepy, <laughs> long, spindly hands and those glowing yellow eyes. And ultimately, and he, he speaks is, in a very theatrical way. He's wielding the power that the film focuses on. Mm-hmm. And if you don't catch that first scene where he is talking about Jonathan and how that was his friend and how he mm. wants to help Mrs. Brisby, yeah, all you see is this creepy old guy <laughs> voyeuring her. <laughs> That is true, God. So I suppose if you were if you were late and buying popcorn at the cinema and you came in, you're like, right. So what's happening? Mice? Okay. Yeah, or like if you're a little kid and you're just catching it on syndication, you miss the opening credits. You're, yeah. You're like, who is this creepy old mouse? Yeah. Um, I find it funny that because I never read the book. Um, mm. that when you were like, the book is so much darker, and I'm like, how much darker can it be? We watched the bad guys. <laughs> Discuss, plan, and execute a premeditated homicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then you said what the ending is, and it makes way more sense why well, yeah, it was darker. That's the, that's the thing. I think it's threat versus, uh, like, like what actually happens there. In this, they do stage, like I said, they, they, they kill Nicodemus. Is it that they crush him with a giant cinder block? Yeah. That's the house that they're attempting to move. Yeah, they so that they can make with a power the house, drive. with the kids in yeah. the house. <laughs> and, I mean, technically the book ends in the same way. Mrs. Frisbee and the kids are all fine. They all live. Um, in fact, there was a uh, straight-to-video sequel to this with not Bluth animation. It was called Timmy to the Rescue, which doesn't have the same tone as this. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so they, they all live. It's just that it felt like in the book there was so much more of a sacrifice paid for that. Uh, not yeah. that I'm saying the book's better than the... I haven't read the book since I was nine. It's just that the book really sunk in at that early age, whereas this was sitting on a pile of a hundred or so fantastic animated films from Disney, Ghibli, DreamWorks, 
Pixar, of course. Mm. I think as well there's an element of the book, and again, this isn't necessarily saying that one is better than the other because they both have qualities that Mm. can come through in different ways. There is a reason why so many things get adapted. People sometimes prefer a a certain way of absorbing Mm. a story, and that is absolutely fine. But in the book, because you have this almost constant exposure to Mrs. Frisbee's internal concerns, Mm. the fact that she is so worried conveys Mm. a sense of fear that is not quite so oppressive in the film there is a different kind of fear which is these rats all look terrifying yeah yeah Yeah. and i definitely think like the fear that i saw as a kid versus like as an adult is completely different like Mm. re-watching this with the eyes of of a 33 year old very different experience because like as a kid the rats are are scary the cat is one of the scariest animated cats like half his face is kind of messed up, mm. and he's got like different colored eyes. I feel like Don Bluth hated cats. Yeah, like yeah. There's the, a pattern. Of the next one we're going to do is like an anti-cat screed. And we had cats as kids, and I remember always like feeling bad about having cats mm. when we would watch these movies because the cats are always bad guys. Mm. See, yeah. the cat um, I had as a kid was totally the kind of cat that would eat Mrs. Frisbee, so that was fine. Well, this this was the cat, dog, and mouse era that I spoke of on those Disney shows, where uh, if you made a film for kids, you were probably Disney, and it was probably going to have dogs in it, or mice in it, or cats in it. And they just bounce between those species until they found the Little Mermaid. More on that later. But uh, it was it was just what you did, and and no one really wanted to work outside that. And the the, the various competitors to Disney that weren't the Bluth uh, company did not succeed. There there were yeah. definitely a couple like you know the, I remember the Water Babies is is a semi animated mm. and it has like it's bookended with live action. Yeah, a lot of the films that I remember watching that Mm. were for that age group when I was much younger tended to be the rotoscoped part live Mm. action things like the water babies like you said dot and the kangaroo Rankin Bass made a whole bunch the last unicorn one of our previous shows you should definitely listen to along with my flight of dragons and uh but I would never have called them Disney competitors they weren't Mm. they weren't on the same track Ralph Bakshi with his disgusting back catalogue and Lord of the Rings and it, it, it was that he was basically making indie films that were animated yeah uh, but it feels like to a degree Don never managed to pull himself all the way out of the cat dog and mouse era and when he did and he focused entirely on humans one like with Anastasia that actually is probably worth talking about as well we might do that for a, uh, an after school special at one point it succeeded, but with Titan AE, it was like, this is not your wheelhouse, Don. And the irony being, he created Space Ace, the uh, the, the, the Laserdisc game um, from the same stable as Dragon's Lair. And so you'd think it would absolutely be his, his space to do a Buck Rogers-style adventure, but people just rejected Titan AE wholesale. Maybe it's just because Star Wars had just emerged at that point. They were like, we don't want space fantasy. We specifically want Star Wars. Mm. But they also rejected Treasure Planet, which yeah. was after a very similar Star template, Wars. So. Star Wars. <laughs> 
We don't want it's things like Star Wars. We, we just want it's, Star it's Wars. It's like Call of Duty. All those competitors to Call of Duty that were coming out and going, do you want to play our gun shooty game? And they were like, no, we want to play Call of Duty. We do haven't you, got any time to play it. Do you want to play, play our else. MMORPG? No. We, we want, want to play, play World, World of Warcraft. Warcraft. We've only got time for one thing. Absolutely. <laughs> Cat, carry on, sorry. No, it's one of those things where I... My my husband and I watched the movies together, so some of the notes are his. And when I was like, we're doing Don Bluth, he was like, Titan A.E. <laughs> he was so pumped. And I was like, no, we're not doing that one, honey. I know it's your favorite. Oh, <laughs> now I want to do that in an after-school club just for him. Um, I, I'm going to put a maybe on that one because it is noteworthy. Um, but the soundtrack's the th- great. Yeah, one of the things that I really like about Don Bluth animation, and I, I rediscover this every time I sit down with one of them, is that sparkly, shiny kind of magic that gets infused there. It's not in that era of Disney as much by any means, but it's definitely in all of these films that we're talking about. It's that kind of like magical sparks and then the shining light bouncing off of gold on, on the little, um, there's the, like a little jewel in this. And it just, it makes it feel like you know, hush up now, we're about to watch something magical. And one of the things that detracts from that is the tone shifts. Sharon, please talk to I, us about tone shifts I across the board. I have a theory about what Don Bluth is doing wrong in a lot of his stuff. Not wrong for everyone, but wrong if you want to get a mass audience. So his, his thing about stop babying the kids, they need to be exposed to things that are sad and upsetting is absolutely on the money in principle. Yeah, it's like he's he's talking about Illumination at that point, yeah. who deliberately go out of their way to not allow much pain into their movies. Indeed. But there's a balance, and a lot of it is going to depend on what age group of children you're trying to sell the movie to, because the bottom line is you're not trying to sell this movie to the kids. You're trying to sell this movie to their parents, mm. and the vast majority of parents do not want their kids exposed to sadness and, and misery, certainly not in environments that they can't control. You're with them for an hour and 20 minutes. i got to live with them. Exactly, and the... the what a, a kid's movie is, or it certainly was in those days, was something that you could put on to occupy them, mm. not make them sad, not make them try to encompass the miseries of the world. And Behold also, the miseries of the world. <laughs> and also, unlike today, when the internet basically... Don't say basically... Unlike today, when the internet effectively oh, drowns... That's just a fancy, your... basically. No, 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 because <laughs> I need the couch word for this. Okay, okay. Unlike today, when the internet effectively drowns children in the outside world and makes it impossible for them to keep it away once they've crossed a certain threshold, yeah. back in those days, parents had a lot more say in how quickly their kids were exposed to trauma and sadness and unhappiness and, and the level to which that was going to be controlled. Meanwhile, they were like, go outside and play in the neighbourhood. Be back at six before it gets dark. You might want to go play on the railway lines. Oh, I'm not saying there weren't flaws to this approach. <laughs> Believe me. It's the streetlights. When the streetlights came on, you had to go home. Yes. There you go. <laughs> and if you saw some dead dogs on the way home, well, honey, that was on you. <laughs> Who? But I don't disagree with Bluth in principle on that. What I do think is that he didn't know how to transition from the sadness he wanted to 
put in his films and the darkness that he operated in mm. to the lightness and fluffiness that I'm willing to bet his producers insisted that he include. Mm. And there are numerous occasions throughout his movies... I vote that we make him movies, fluffier by 10%. Well, indeed. There are numerous occasions throughout his movies where he slaloms from one to the other and the, the turns are so sharp. They're like hairpin turns. Absolutely. And really... It, very young children, which is what these kids are... Yeah, they skew young. Which is what these movies are fairly squarely marketed towards, cannot keep up with those turns. They could, but I feel like more savvy young kids would be weirdly unsettled by it, but not be able to put a finger on why. Mm. That makes sense. If they were very self-aware, they'd go, why are they laughing now? The thing that just happened was was not funny at all. It was sad. And it's like, I don't know, take it up with Bambi. But um <laughs> Wait, is there's a, no, there's no, a no. scene Take it where with Bambi's dad. Yes. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> where she thought she'd lost the medicine when they're running from the cat mm. and she's just sitting in the it's this kind of grayscale like the lighting cuz she's inside. Yeah. is kind of grayed out and she's just sitting there sobbing because she lost the medicine to save her kid. And then in comes Dom DeLuise to yuck it up. <laughs> yeah, that crow. Is he a crow, Jeremy? Yeah. He's like, hey, I'm your animal companion. I hope you like the cowardly lion, because that's what I'm going to be doing in all of these films. <laughs> it's fine. He, he, he's kind of a welcome. He made me wish that John Candy was playing most of his roles, though. But as well as the sparkly shiny, I also noticed that the moon is always massive in Don Bluth films. Like, he goes out of his way to make it huge, which ties him in very neatly with Amblin later on, because obviously Spielberg wants the moon to be huge as well. But he wasn't with Spielberg at this point yet. Uh, and to, uh, as well as not being able to handle slaloming in tone, because this guy was an artist who definitely had darkness in there and wanted to put it forwards, but also he was making products that had to be marketed, and that's where it kind of fell, fell down. It's so clear, if you look at the amount of times he has had to start companies, close companies, declare bankruptcy, start another company, with the same name in it, uh, that he is not an industrialist like Walt Disney. He is a dreamer, an ideas man. And I, he must have thought, I can do this all, same as Walt did. Mm. There's something else he can't do anywhere near as well as Walt, and that is storytelling. Mm. He's a great animator, and like you said, he comes up with some great ideas, but he goes from A to J to Z. Potentially because of all that slaloming and, and not really being able to just focus it. Like, the, the premise for this film is so straightforward. Mrs. Frisbee, Mrs. Brisby's son, her youngest, weakest son, is very sick with, in, in, with pneumonia. This is something that every parent can relate to when their kid gets sick going, is this going to be a really bad one? And every kid who's ever gotten sick before, which is all of us, um, has often thought, am I dying? Is this what death is? So, but at least, like, if you see as a kid the mom is very scared and concerned, that's a really powerful way to just shut, just get momentum in your movie. And it feels like he's trying to just kind of throw br blocks in the way of that momentum with the funny stuff and, and like... The, everything about the Rats of Nim and all of their, their their sort of backstory, I'm like, this is kind of fascinating. Feels like we could should have started the movie with that, 
rather than it being a mystery. And, and that would have actually kind of defied the book to a degree. But another thing is, like, if we'd known who Jonathan was, we can then feel that absence with Mrs. Brisby as opposed to being told that she misses him. Hmm. Yeah. There's also the fact that the the film brings in a much more magical element that the book does not have, and that takes up a lot of real estate in what is a short film. Yeah. Again, watching it as an adult uh, was kind of eye-opening in that, like, the day after I turned 18, my dad died. Oh. And so watching the, you know, Mrs. Brisby have to deal with widowhood and then the illness and the loss of the family and the potential mm. loss of their home, like all of that stuff hit a lot closer as someone who then had, who spent kind of my more adult years watching my mom suddenly have to be the sing the person having to deal with those pieces and those fam familial disasters um, without their partner. Mm. And especially in that first year or so after dad died, like, all of us went to college. It was like a month later and we all had to go to college and so mom had to deal with that and like watching it in kind of a, you know, little mouse form. Mm. It's it's so much darker in such a different way. It was like, man, these rats are scary. And now I'm like, man, the, the world is scary. <laughs> You're right. There's two different types of fear in this for children and adults. It's kind of like Stephen King's It, actually, now that I think about it. The kids are afraid of the big, scary Greeblies and the giant owl, who is really magnificently animated, by the way. He's, he's got oh, a real so presence. Um, and the uh, adults are like, I'm sure the mouse will get through all of these scary rats and owls and things, but her kid might die, and that's the most terrifying thing I could imagine. Mm. Or they might have yeah. nowhere to live, and that's the most terrifying thing yeah. I can imagine. So, actually, and yeah, they, I don't have someone to help me carry this burden mm. now because my husband just died. <laughs> I feel like this could do with a remake, but if it did, it did what it was doing effectively it would also get slammed by critics. There were there were critics who were just going, this doesn't have the weight of the book, or this has too much weight, this is not child-friendly fair. Um, and, yeah, Bluth would get a lot of this is not child-friendly fair. Another one seems quite persnickety, but it's like, now that I think about it, that does kind of make sense. The Rats of Nim are... Uh, exceptional because they've been boosted by science so they can speak they can read they have a civilization of their own and the mice also speak and read and have a civilization of their own and move and have human conceptions of the world and it actually makes these special rats less special if everyone can talk and i thought well maybe, maybe it's just hanging around with jonathan but the neighbor mrs shrew or something it ha has that too Auntie shrew. she Auntie can't shrew. read though yeah Auntie shrew can't read hmm. um mrs brisby talks about how she can read a little because jonathan taught, taught her. her yeah okay but that the kids are better at it which makes sense because the kids probably got some of the you know fun science stuff yeah. from their dad but, I mean, that that's still a tough sell to an audience going, this, these rats are amazing. They can talk. Well, all the mice can talk, but they can read. Okay. Wow. And they're also <laughs> so stringently moralistic that they are going to move because they can't stand that they're stealing electricity. Yeah, I really like that, uh, to live without stealing. That reminded me of Remy in uh, Ratatouille, where he's like, oh, I do not want to steal food for what I'm doing here. Mm, yeah, which, in a way, that goes even darker and even more adult than I think even Don Bluth knew he was writing. That existential concept of, if you can understand the things you have to do to survive, then you have to start questioning the morality mm. of them. And that's a very human thing. 
Other than a joke I made about how the main villain got worm-tongued, I think that's all my notes. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean there. He also got Jafard. He did, yeah. Yeah. Don't trust the Grand Vizier with his his uh, weird zigzag beard. Uh, are you going to follow she, up? On actually, the, the Grand Vizier in uh, another um, big dreamer animator, Richard Williams' uh, magnum opus, The Thief and the Cobbler, which is a fascinating episode on how a film doesn't get made for decades and then gets forcibly made. His Grand Vizier was literally called Zigzag. <laughs> All right. Uh, you, that was actually Price. one comment my husband made when we were watching it. He goes. I think this movie is why I never trust anyone with a wavy sword. Yeah, those wavy hey, swords, they look wavy unnecessarily sword, wavy. Guy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, what are you doing with all those waves, huh? You're going to stab me anyway, but now what's the, what are those for? <laughs> Anything else? Uh, I was just going to ask if you were going to tell the story about the frisbee. You tell the story about the frisbee. <laughs> That's the thing. It, okay, the reason that this amuses me so much is that we were watching it and I was like, that sounds like they're saying Brisby. And then I'm reading the, the Wikipedia entry and it says, yeah, they couldn't get John Carradine back to do the, the re-recording for the voice. So they had to paste the letter B over every time he said Frisbee. And so that he said Brisby instead. And I thought, that seems really intricate. Why did they need to do that? It can't possibly have been to do with the fact that Frisbee is a trademark. Could, Could it? it? <laughs> Could it? Oh. And yes, yes, indeed, it was. It wasn't so much that the company that owned Frisbee had threatened to sue them, but Aurora, who was one of the two or three production teams that Bluth was working with to get the money together for this uh, at the time, had preemptively gone to the company that made Frisbees and said, if we put out a film with a character in it called Frisbee, will you sue us? And the company went, we promise nothing. Oh. And so Aurora went, right, just to be on the safe side, change her name. To Brisbee. To Brisbee. <sighs> so Novelty Flying Disc does get the uh, cure for her son, and, and uh, uh, they do move, although there is a, a great deal of... Uh, the, the Nicodemus, this grand uh, wizard of the, the rats, does perish in, in the moving of that. But the rats help them, and it's, it, it's a nice ending insofar as that. Evil is punished, question mark? I can't remember what happened to the Grand Vizier. It's a little meandering. It, 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 the feel that I get from it is not so much evil is punished as evil is avoided. Okay. I do like the idea of being cunning enough to actually add the B and the R over the F to use 19, early 1980s, let's face it, 1970s technology to overdub that. That's, that's serious skill. I mean, I do the same thing myself, but I have digital at my disposal, and I don't have to do it very often at all, only when like two versions of a line are slightly fluffed and I have to put, cram them together. I never have to change a whole name, aside from times when I accidentally called someone the wrong name in, in, a, in a book and have to be told about it by someone who read it six months ago. <laughs> okay, so, an American tale. This holiday season, Universal Pictures brings you a very special motion picture experience. The first animated feature film presented by Steven Spielberg. An American Tale. The story of one family's journey to America and Fievel, their son, who got lost along the way. Papa. 
American Tale, a Don Bluth film. The 1982 first Endeavor failed on its ass. It cost $7 million to make, which was a low for an animated film at that time. But even on this low budget, even with the dark beauty they could spin from that meager amount of money, they only made $14 million back, which in Hollywood terms means you failed. You made twice as much as you cost. You failed. For perspective, Disney spent $12 million on The Fox and Hound, which was the last film that Bluth had worked with them on, and when it released in 1981, a year before the rap picture, it made $63 million, nearly five times as much at the box office as Secret of Nim. And that film was considered something of a failure. The Rescuers, which Nim most resembles, cost the same $7.5 million in 1977 and made $169 million. An astonishing success, an absolute proof that with the right marketing and execution, mass audiences will flock to a mouse picture. Up against 14 million box office for The Secret of Nim. Like, the one that he was making in 82, he was technically going to be courting the same audiences. And I don't really know why they didn't turn up in droves for this one. Was it just that The Rescuers was really cute, as well as being sad and melancholy? I would imagine there's an element of mm. that. The music, they would have been able to to play that on trailers and also Don Bluth doesn't know how to market. That is true. Sadly, Don Bluth Productions had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, so Don is down but not out. He forms a new company called The Bluth Group. Makes friends... This sounds oddly like The Goof Troop. <laughs> uh, he makes friends with Steven Spielberg, which is no mean feat. And in 1986, arguably the most important man in Hollywood at the time helped to bankroll an American tale. This is a parable dealing with the experiences of late 19th century immigrants in New York City through the lens of a family of Jewish mice, the Mauskowitz family, fleeing the Ukrainian city of Shotska during the 19... <laughs> during the culling of the Jewish populations there by the Cossacks, who in this case are accompanied by a bunch of Cossack cats, dead set on a final solution for the mice. It's bone-chilling, folks. They manage to reach New York City in 1885, but Fivel, the young mouse boy, is lost overboard on the ship, and the parents and sister must accept that he is definitely dead. It's a little disturbing, a little harrowing as a premise, and it doesn't sit well with the hopeful, whimsical tone of much of the rest of the movie, where we're told by a happy French pigeon to never say never again, even though it turns out that despite the lyrics of a self-deluded sing-song on board the ship accompanied by mice of Irish and Sicilian extraction, it turns out there are cats in America. Ah, so we returned, hmm? <laughs> We saw some fish. Fish? Lucky you didn't see some cats. <gasps> cats! Gato! Cats! Cats! I didn't see any cats. Won't it be nice to get to America where we don't have to worry about cats anymore? There are no cats in America. But back home in Mother Russia... Oh. Our family was traveling through the snow to Minsk. Suddenly, Papa saw those huge paw prints. When I heard him screaming, I fainted dead away. And I woke up an orphan. <gasps> but, but, but there are no 
the streets are paved with cheese. Oh, there are no cats in America, so set your mind at ease. <laughs> la cosa terribile che esiste nella patria mia. Do you think that things were bad in Russia? You should see things in my country. <laughs> Times were hard in Sicily. We had no provolone. The Don, he was a tabby with a taste for my brother Tony. When Mama went to plead for him, the Don said he would see her. We found her rosary on the ground. <laughs> Poor Mamma Mia. <laughs> But... But there are no cats in America, and the streets are paved with cheese. Oh, there are no cats in America, so set your mind at ease. <laughs> I'm not sad, but sadder still. When I was but a lad, I lost my true love fair. A calico, he caught us by surprise. In a flash of teeth and fur, her tail was all he left of her. Neath a heather is where it to Ralura lies. But. But there are no cats in America. This illustrates the lie of the streets being paved with gold, an exaggeration of potential prospects in a city and indeed a nation filled with racists and predators. The mice have their names changed at Ellis Island to something easier to write and pronounce, which feels way too much like real life. And that's and this is a good thing. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to tell real life stories through uh, cute fiction that the kids could get their heads around. They were trying to also. There aren't that many Hanukkah films and this kind of felt like one that you could watch at Hanukkah and Fivel wanders the streets having to rely on the kindness of strangers and frequently gets screwed over by liars and vagabonds like Warren T. Rat who is actually a cat in a bad disguise and when he howls he sounds like a dog uh, and Honest John at Tammany Hall and that is the name of the fox, uh, the, the the wicked, deceitful fox in Pinocchio, occupying the place of Boss Tweed in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. So again, Kat, what was your personal experience with an American tale? So I vaguely remember having watched this. I remember watching the sequel a lot. Oh, Fievel Goes West. Yeah, I that watched Fievel Goes blue West film. a lot. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if it's because we just happened to have that one on VHS or, mm. again, if it just happened to be the one that was on syndication a lot. Um, but that one is way more in my memory. Mm-hmm. I recall bits of this, so I must have watched it at some point. But most of watching it again this week was uh, kind of eye-opening again because I'm like, I don't remember any of this bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the music, though. I remember the song because it's the same one from both movies. Oh, uh, which one gets used twice? Uh, it's... um. Uh, 
Somewhere out there. Somewhere out there. I've bullet pointed that because we are definitely going to get to that. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about it now. I, I sang that song as a little kid all the time, much to the chagrin of my oldest sister who could not stand it. <laughs> uh, I pointed out to Sharon that it was definitely a choice to have the kids who play Fival and his sister both sing this song themselves. And whoever came up with the note structure was a madman who really needed to have it sung by kids first and then go, let's uh, let's just change the note structure. We're going to tweak some of this. Yeah, because there harsh. is a note that's early on, which I'm, I'm reliably informed is an F, F5. And it's the somewhere out there beneath the pad moonlight okay. and it's just it breaks you i think that means f sharp i've been having a little problem recently which is quite disturbing musicalically involving a semitonal discrepancy vocally and instrumentally you see musicians of different varieties prefer playing in particular keys and singers too treat preferentially those notes they tackle more proficiently now you don't have to be a member of Mensa To understand the depths of my dilemma The two elements of me favour two different keys Thus the rift betwixt my fingers and my tenor I like nothing more than playing instruments in F It warms the very cockles of my heart The trouble is that F can leave me vocally bereft You see, I like playing in F major but I Singing in F sharp, F sharp, F sharp. I refuse to be beholden to my hands. I don't see why my larynx should give in to their demands. I'll not be forced to compromise my art. And so I'll just keep playing in F major and singing in F sharp, F sharp. F sharp, F sharp, F sharp. I'll keep playing in F major, but I'll keep singing in F sharp. That's, are you sure that's F sharp? Because uh, is F sharp, and beneath the pen. It's, well, well, it's, it's up an F sharp or an F flat. Put it that way. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's just it's a, it's a higher octave, and it's it's just such a weird note, and it, it, yeah, it hurts every time. <laughs> but it's such a sweet, sad song, and Sharon, you said you always cry, and it might just be because always. of that note. <laughs> I, well, see, this is the thing. Like, this is the reason, or one of the reasons, why "Let It Go" makes me cry as well, because there is there's a certain pitch that if I try and sing it, it the music tries to come out of my eyeballs because it's like, no, your, your throat doesn't have the capacity for this. Right. We're going higher. <laughs> it's hard to be a mezzo-soprano in this world well, sometimes, yeah. you know? It's pretty. Yeah, I like it. Been fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing. 
in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys. Really, I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a. It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. They, you're absolutely right, though, Kat. They did used to play this on the, on the radio all the time. It was everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was everywhere. Wow. It was the, like, trailer version, or the credits version that was on the radio, thankfully. They did not yes. subject to the little kids caterwauling no, it out. The, uh, the Linda Ronstan and James Ingram. Right. I called the, that uh, the Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson one because Disney went, we're having that. And then they had Beauty and the Beast sung in exactly the same way a few years later. And they've done it ever since where it's like, oh, this is the big song. We're going to have pop stars do it. And that is true. The yeah, pop Moana star had, version uh, of Let It Go yeah. was vastly less popular yeah. than the actual soundtrack version. I think it's because it feels so studio produced, don't you? Like it just it doesn't like we know that's not the characters expressing themselves. That's just someone singing the song really well because they're a professional. Mm. But yeah. you know, when Adina Menzel, who is also a professional, sings it, she means it. Yes, but if yes. they get a recent popstrel to do mm. a cover version of it, then they can trade on her name as well. There's an irony here, Any recent popstrels here? Hands up. <laughs> There's an irony that uh, Philip Glasser, who played Fievel in the movie, mm -hmm. is almost precisely a month older than me. Yeah. So at the time, he'd have been my age uh -huh. and about as capable of hitting that note as I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's me mother and father. The cats got them two years ago in November. Now don't you worry. Yours are all right. And they're out there somewhere. Now, get some sleep. Thank you. 
together somewhere out there. Our dreams come true. No, I just think all the songs in this are great. Um, mm. It just makes me laugh when Christopher Plummer's out here bringing the the Lumiere impression before Lumiere was a thing. <laughs> ah, I, I asked, is that the guy who played uh, uh, Lumiere? And you had to check. Was that really Christopher Plummer? It's Christopher Plummer. He just sounds just like Jerry Orbach through the entire scene. Wow. <laughs> okay. Love Christopher Plummer. So it's a very Pinocchio story. Like, Fievel keeps... Like it's it's almost like he needs to be put on a path of direction. Like I said, he keeps sort of like popping in on people. There's a kid called Tony, and he's the first one that made me think these mice have haircuts, <laughs> but only some of the mice have hair. What's something hinky's going on? <laughs> Is it those hair stealing aliens? The way Fievel kind of bounces around from one kind person to the other, it's very much kind of an episodic, like, little odyssey to get his... Again, it's it's like, I've lost my family, I need to get them back. That's a that's a straightforward story, and there's a bit of a, a sort of a, a, an outbreath, and like, that was it, and now Fievel needs to appear in the mist, but then they hold it for a little bit longer, and Fievel doesn't just drop into their laps, they have to still go looking for him at the uh, the, the tail end. Okay, so this is kind of a harsh treatment of Don Bluth's body of work, but it is what happens when you put out this kind of movie devoid of context and just put it in front of kids who grow up twisted and jaded because of the rest of the world. Fievel goes west, no, just the second Fievel. one? No, just, no, the, no. just the first one. Not the one that's a joke. Wait. The one that is a uh, parable or whatever for the Jewish uh. people escaping escaping persecution and coming to America. Is that sorry, what the, the fuck are you talking about right now? What's that? What are you talking about? Have you ever seen American Tale? No, All I don't right. even know what that so, is. Oh, you gotta let's watch go, that. Let's go way back. Disney hired a bunch of really talented animators. One of the animators' names was Don Bluth. And when mm. they were making movies, he said they should be sadder. <laughs> he would right. constantly, okay, yeah. he, he'd come, in, come into every, every meeting and he would say, children should be sad and scared all the time. And, and, then, and then eventually, Walt, who was already dead, said, Don, you're scaring every you have to you're gonna have to leave. And he said, Fine, I'll start my own studio. And he did. And every movie he made is a living nightmare. We're gonna do a movie about a dead dog. That's right. I don't wanna die. Oh yikes. Burt Reynolds. And he goes to hell. <laughs> animation is just a medium, right? Like you can tell any story you want to with animation, you know, we we know that. The only thing that Don Bluth did was he said, I'm gonna tell a very adult story using animation and also cute little characters. So this one is gonna star little mouth and he's gonna have a big ol' hat on his head and he's really big coat. He's gonna look real silly. And you know why everything's so big? It's because it was given to him by his Jewish dad before their boat sank. (laughs) After they ran away from the Bolshevik cats that tried to murder them. Oh God, why? Burt Reynolds is a sassy talking dog who dies in the first three minutes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Secret of Nim is about 
a, a lovely mouse mm-hmm. mother, and her son Timmy is dying of pneumonia, mm-hmm. and he's going to die. Yeah. Unless yeah. she can, can steal. She can yeah. move her house, but don't worry, the house is going to crush an old man. <laughs> There's a bad guy, but he gets stabbed in the chest. Yeah, yeah. I want lots of blood for this yeah, scene. We yeah, we want to make blood. sure the murder is on screen. Are you guys making this stuff up, or is this all actually in these movies? At this point, he's just losing his mind. He's like, I want to see that rat throw that knife. Yeah, yeah. I want it to go into that chest. Full frame! I want the kids to see! <laughs> anyway, that's Jesus what the movie's Christ. about, Alana. <laughs> Great, okay, got it. Yeah, well, watch the- them all in order, and then until you'll eventually get to the one with Matt Damon. Titan A.E. Oh, uh, Titan A.E. Titan A.E. There you go. Yes. Titan A.E. It's Matt Damon, and he's flying through space, and at some point someone gets shot, and we're gonna animate all the zero-G space blood. <laughs> exactly <laughs> what you're talking Like, okay, we're, there's gonna be a female lead, mm-hmm. and the part where she gets shot, I want... So much blood! I want it all exploded. We want to watch her die. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and also the main character's dad dies immediately in the beginning. Immediately. Earth explodes. Earth explodes, but it's cute. It's a cute Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! The trailer will have Creed. What a villain! He looks real goofy. He's got long legs, but then his necks get fucking snapped at the end. He also <laughs> loves video games too. He made vid- he made Space Ace and Dragon's Lair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's kind of a kind of a pervert. I want to see Daphne's ass. <laughs> Make sure you can see through everything. It's animation after yeah. all, where dreams come true. Mine. <laughs> it's a cartoon video game, and you got to save the princess, and her nipples are real hard. <laughs> what? <laughs> I also noticed this time uh, they, there was a bird cage or something that Mrs. Brisby gets uh, uh, locked in in that film, and they clearly rotoscoped that. I think when they were doing 3D objects, they just kind of put them into the frame and painted over them in just the right amount of it. But you can always tell what's rotoscoped from this era. And like most of the expensive stuff with Ralph Bakshi, for example. Um, and I think later on, and this is something that Disney did uh, in a lot of their earlier films, there are rotoscoped people. So they have, like when they move around, you're like, that was definitely a person moving on film who has now been painted over. But it seems like a lot of human stuff is rotoscoped in this. And while I would normally say that feels like cutting corners, it actually accomplishes a different stylistic choice, which is that the mice exist on pretty much a different plane of reality to the humans. Their world is 2D hand-drawn, and the humans is 3D rotoscoped. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, it it sells it a lot better that they're kind of, you know, that there's kind of this just subculture. And when they have to even interact with humans, it's kind of scary because they're because they move weird. Yeah. But Which, uh, it, it makes sense. From the eyes of a mouse, we do move weird. There isn't that sense of uh, humans being a deadly threat like uh, Secret of Nim quite so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, right. They, they, their beef is with cats. And for a start, I don't get why the rumor has been spread that there are no cats in America, because there, there totally are. I think they, that fundamentally is an expression of... Like I said, it's the, the lie. idealism the that idealism, comes yeah. with wanting to change your circumstances. Yeah. That the if if you're looking at making a change in your life and there isn't anything actively pushing you out of the situation that mm. you're in, there has to be something significantly better that you're moving towards in order to motivate you. And it's an interesting parallel actually because. Fivel, once he arrives, has no forward momentum at all. Like you said, he has to be passed around from from Mm. kind person to kind person. He has this vague idea that he's keeping half an ear out for his father's fiddle, but he's not really 
after his first burst of, well, they must be here somewhere, he very quickly drops into a, a kind of a despairing, they're just gone, that I have no chance of finding them. I here. must accept that they are dead. Yeah. So the, 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 refle- the positive reflection of that, I think, is the, well, we're going to America because, and then it's the, the logical fallacy. Of course, the streets are not paved with gold. Mm. It, and yes, even at the time, people knew it was a metaphor for the fact that there's apparently gold everywhere. You can just pick yeah. it up out of, the, out of the water if you were heading to somewhere where there was an actual gold rush going on. But yes, by and large, it's, it's the metaphor for opportunity. The idea that there are no cats in America is more the eternal miseries that have dogged us in Eastern Europe and, and Southern Russia mm. will not be there in America. It won't be cold. It won't constantly snow. The food won't rot in the ground. You know, all of these things that, that would be the stuff that you would move away from if you were in a country where that happened a lot, you would tell yourself that where you were going to, that kind of thing just didn't exist. There's probably going to be a shed load of other stuff, yeah. but you don't want to be thinking about that. Otherwise, you'll never go anywhere. It's, it seems different now than it was in the 80s, because now your brain goes, well, just a, a quick jump on Google will tell you there are cats in America. <laughs> <laughs> Do your research. But uh, honestly, like up, up until a, a while back, the, the idea of doing uh, you know any kind of uh, research, it was much more shrouded in hearsay in the 19th century. Getting things nailed down as principles was very difficult. Absolutely. And even more recently than that, uh, I mean, my family... Yeah, now we've found getting things, even basic truths nailed down well, as principles is indeed. rather difficult with the internet. <laughs> But, like, my family have done a lot of moving around. And even very recently, my mother, when she was little, her family went to Australia. And the British government were doing this deal where you could pay £10 each for your ticket. And they would take you out there. And you had to stay for two years and you had to work once you got there. But there were all sorts of, you know, this will happen and that will happen. And then they got there and it was quite different than they'd been told it was going to be. So it... Even sort of the, the, this must have been the 60s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. So back when people couldn't even do, they, they couldn't even really be told anything. It was all hearsay. It was all speculation. You, there's, a, there's a throwing your lot in with fate sense to it which I think is is one of the things that appealed to Spielberg and wanting to present this story of refugees people who were were traveling long distances and giving up everything because the prospect of coming back was non-existent it was it's got to be better out there because that's the direction we're headed in and I think they did manage to convey that quite solidly yeah you have to convince yourself that whatever you're leaving, wherever you're going, isn't going to have why you're running. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that whole song, though, from an American standpoint in, you know, the year of our Lord 2022 is harsh. Yeah. It, it's just now it's just, I'm, I'm watching the whole thing just like, oh, this is depressing. I don't feel like this at all <laughs> about my country. You know, I would... There are times my husband and I joke because I, I work for a company that's owned by a Dutch company. I'm like, we could just move to the Netherlands. They all speak English there. I've, you know, they have universal health care. They're generally happier per capita. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of depressing to see the way that they talk about America, not looking at America now. Yeah. And it's, I think I'm just millennial enough to be super jaded about 
imagining thinking that way. And also they kind of, they present us with a problem, which is actually it turns out that Manhattan is swarming with cats. And then they kind of have to finish the movie and they can't just leave it like that. So they go, uh, then the mice fight back. And with clever invention that's uh, rotoscoped and thus from the human world, this giant fire-breathing mouse, they chase the cats all onto a big boat bound for Hong Kong, thus solving the racism problem in America forever. Forever, cat. Forever. Forever, all problem solved. Yeah, but um, plus also poor Hong Kong. It's not like they've been screwed over by the British already by this point in history. I mean, I assumed that there was a tiny bit of racist joke there that the cats would be eaten. Oh God, I, I my brain didn't even go there. Yeah, for a movie that hammers the dangers of anti-Semitism and, and the fear of others, and like. Don Bluth in in most, especially in like this one in Land Before Time, really covers like racism is dangerous. Mm. They bank on a lot of racist stereotypes for yeah. everybody but the Mouskowitzes. Like yeah. the Irish racism <laughs> is real it's, in this film. It's more just a very broad depictions of Irish mice, and they're like hearty tarty tar. We're coming at you live from the Blarney and store. we're all drunk. <laughs> Yes, and, and also they like to drink. Oh. There's a lot of shorthand going on. Mm. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right about the racism, and I, as in, like, that, that's what this is kind of challenging. Land Before Time does it way better, for reasons I'll go into in a bit. But um, we've also got Tiger, hashtag not all cats, <laughs> who may as well just put on mouse ears and go, I'm going to stay with my little buddies here. <laughs> Actually, speaking of Tiger, I mean, there's a really... But Warren T. Rat did exactly that. He did, he did, yeah. But there's a there's a really nice visual trick that they pull when Fievel and Tiger are doing their duet. Oh, yeah, they're, they're basically going to yeah. be buddies. A lot of what you, you and me, see... we're a couple of kids. <laughs> it's, it's weird. <laughs> but when you see them dancing together, there's only a few shots where you're seeing them from sort of a third-person perspective. And... Obviously, the size discrepancy is quite dramatic. Timothy, yep, Timothy, Fivel <laughs> is very small, and Tiger is not a, a little cat. Yeah. But then, when you see themselves from their perspectives, they're dancing in front of mm. a reflective surface, and quite often there's a there's a like a curve in the side of the jar or whatever it is that they're dancing in front of, which means that if they stand in a certain way. Like you said, Alex, there's a forced perspective that makes them look closer in size. Not quite the same, but just it and it varies as well. So it's almost like if we're looking at this from the perspective of two friends, we are just two friends. The fact that you're more massive than me is irrelevant. And but when we're looking at it from an outside perspective, all that seems obvious is you're about the size of my paw, and if I set a foot wrong, I'm going to squish you. Uh, you can confirm or disconfirm this one, Cat, being the person among us who has seen an American tale, Fievel Goes West. I'm assuming it's when Fievel is older, a little more jaded, and if he's travelling with Tiger, then it's going to be an Of Mice and Men style situation, but with a flea. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to do it, George! And it's going to be that, right? Nope, no, it's nope. basically almost the entire same plot. Like, oh, they're moving oh. west to get away from the cats, and in the west there will be no mice again. Uh, okay. or no, there are no cats in the west, so it'll be fine again. And uh, he gets separated from his family while they travel Ooh. again. So this is Mouse Alone. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's Mouse Alone 2, Lost in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> uh, play friendly with your new teacher, children. <laughs> Howdy. 
I am a Texas cowboy. The year is 1830. You youngins ask me any questions you like. Can we play kickball instead of science after lunch? Kickball? Son, there ain't no kickball in 1830. Any other questions? Shoot, it's awfully quiet on the plains here. Well, how about this? Everybody, I want to see two eyes on every single person staring right at me right now. There are three things wrong with my costume. Anybody names those three things will get my hat. I believe I know the answer. Well, 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 what's your name? Lisa Simpson. Well, go ahead, Miss Simpson. Um, one. Your belt buckle says state of Texas, but Texas wasn't a state until 1845. Very good. <laughs> two. The revolver wasn't invented until 1835. That's excellent. Three. You seem to be of the Jewish faith. Are you sure I'm Jewish? Or Italian. I'm Jewish. And there weren't any Jewish cowboys. Very good. That's excellent. And I'm also wearing a digital watch, but I'll accept that. Here you go, little lady. And for the record, there were a few Jewish cowboys, ladies and gentlemen, big guys who were great shots and spent money freely. I'm Mr. Bergstrom. Feel free to make fun of my name if you want. Two suggestions are Mr. Nerdstrom and Mr. Boogerstrom. <laughs> <laughs> so even if it's not of mice and men and cats... American Tale 2, Five All Goes West, does at least prove there was one more Jewish cowboy. He was just so tiny, no one ever saw him. They were, uh, there was a bit when they're doing a flyby at the end that he gets reunited with his family. It's lovely, and it's, it's heartwarming. And again, not enough Jewish cinema that really tells their story in a way that they can be proud and happy for. So I, I can understand why this one would, uh, would be celebrated. And using the story of the Jewish golem as an analogy for the Mouse of Minsk. Ah, that makes so much sense. I yep. did not know that, but yeah, the golem. Yeah, so they're doing a, they're flying on Christopher Plummer's pigeon back, and they're going round and round a rotoscope Statue of Liberty. And I was like, "Don't you wink? Don't you wink? I don't remember this, but you'd better not wink." And then she bloody winks, and I'm like, "No!" In like a creepy, uncanny valley kind of way. It yeah, because okay. if you ever look at the Statue of Liberty's face, she's not happy, and with good reason. So she shouldn't be winking. Mm. <laughs> I'm the Statue of <laughs> Liberty, giant. Air quotes, which sends her book clattering to the ground, crushing all mice. There is something quite telling in what represents the entrance to America on at least three of its metaphorical borders, though. The the entrance that leads to Europe or leads from Europe. You've got a big statue and a bring me your... Poor, you're tired, you're huddled masses. You're dispossessed. And uh, to the south, we've got a fence that nobody can be bothered to maintain. And to the north, we've got a bridge that nobody cares about until the trade gets interfered with and then everybody gets all up in their arms about it. And to the west, the Golden Gate Bridge? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say the closest you got there is the Golden Gate. Okay. It's the, that's, I, do it's a, the... I do a quote of the day sometimes on my Facebook and I will repost it occasionally. The day that the, um, in history that the, Statue of Liberty was finished. I posted its poem. And then every year when I like browse my Facebook memories, I just copy it and I paste it again. And I did that for years. And no one ever be like, ah, oh, I like that poem. Of course, right, like 2017, mm-hmm. right during like the big Trump immigrant crisis thing, all of a sudden my conservative uncles are like, oh, and trying to argue with me. And I'm like, guys, it's the Statue of Liberty poem. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening here? Uh, yeah. Yeah, your memoirs Facebook page is uh, problematic. Uh, my memoirs is great, but my uncles are rough. Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm Bridget Greenberg, and if my last name wasn't enough of a hint, yes, I am Jewish, and I'm here as a member of the tribe to discuss one of Steven Spielberg's best cinematic tributes to our culture, an American tale. 
It's a story of hope, family, and light stereotyping that gave generations of young Jewish Americans insight into our history and made us believe in an America where the streets were paved with cheese. And the streets are paved with cheese. The latter of which, I'll admit, is a bad lesson, but it's important to learn some things the hard way. Obviously, I have my biases, but American Tale is a modern masterpiece that everyone can appreciate. Unless you don't find this guy cute, and then you're just a monster, and I can't help you. But for you non-monsters, stick with me, and I promise it will be as educational as it will be fun. I'm not making an easy sell. Our setting is in 1885 Russia. Presumably, it's pretty much the same as present-day Russia, just slightly less cybercrime. The Russian government launched a series of pogroms, which were state-sponsored attacks on Jewish villages across Russia. They started in the early 1800s when a misconception spread that Jews were responsible for the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, which is the kind of mix-up that happens all the time. Anyway, making up a major portion of the Russian army were a rugged group of settlers known as the Cossacks, and known to the characters of American Tale as the Catsacks. Throughout the late 1800s and into the 1900s, there were three major pogroms, which led to roughly 2.5 million Jews leaving the country between 1881 and 1914, a percentage of whom managed to make it to the U.S. of A. And in that percentage were the Mauskowitzes and the Greenbergs. That's my grandpa. The point being, this movie is incredibly historically accurate, especially for one about a singing mouse that illegally gets into the United States via bottle. Knowing your history is important, obviously, but the people who live through it don't always want to talk about it because, and they only touched on this lightly in the history books, the past f***ing sucked. Sure, rent was probably cheaper back then, but also polio. Rehashing the past can be understandably tough for older generations, so having movies where kids can learn about their past and their culture is helpful, especially if your movies and shows tend to fall on one of two ends of a spectrum. We don't have a lot of stuff for kids. Maybe a couple special episodes of The Rugrats, but those felt like kind of a reach. When the Moskowitz family finally reaches America, they quickly discover the dream they were sold of an oppression-free America is not exactly reality. There are no cats in America. There are cats in America, in fact. There are cats all over it. They've been following me at night. Like millions of other immigrants, the Mouskowitzes were quickly disillusioned. But did that stop them? You bet your tiny cartoon mouse ass it did not. They refused to be chased out of America where they were promised freedom. And instead of retreating, they band together with immigrant mice all across New York to stage a demonstration to let the cats know they have a place here too, and they are not giving it up so easily. And leading the charge is a mouse named Bridget. There's no point there, that's just a fun coincidence. This isn't just a glimpse into Jewish history and culture, it's a story about communities coming together to fight to make America a place where we all belong. It's a happy ending for a real sad movie. Definitely the saddest cartoon mouse movie. 17th, if we're just ranking movies in general. It goes the opening montage from Up, Secret Garden, and then Jack Frost, and then you go into your dog movies, your old yellers, your Marley and Me's, your My Dog Skips, Air Bud, Read Between the Lines, Radio. I had to say Bridget's piece for the end there because it was so comprehensive and addressed a lot of our issues from an insider perspective. Unlike Secret of Nim, An American Tale was a box office success story. It cost $9 million and it made $84 million. Spielberg's name, endorsement, supervision and clout definitely will have helped this. Amblin and the newly formed Sullivan Bluth Studios, now affiliated with Morris Sullivan, proceeded onward to make The Land Before Time. And this was the third and final film that we are covering tonight. It's also, it's a, it's a rare one-two punch for Don Bluth Productions. Like, he'll have one success, but this is two successes in a row, because Land Before Time also was successful. This was conceived as Bambi with dinosaurs, but they go further with the dramatic aspects than that stag film from the 1940s. We follow 
a swiftly assembling group of infant dinosaurs who are separated from their parents and guardians and must make a perilous journey to the Great Valley during a time of severe tectonic upheaval and climate change. This holiday season, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film, The Land Before Time. Long ago, when the Earth was new, five friends lost and alone. Mother, where are you? Took an incredible journey. You want to go with me? Yeah! Through a land of wonder and a land of danger. the creators of an American tale comes a story of friendship. Do not stop! We must stay together! Courage. Uh, oh, you can't quit now. What if the Great Valley is just over the top of these rocks? And laughter. <laughs> From Universal Pictures. Some things you see with your eyes. Others you see with your heart. A new adventure is born. The Land Before Time. Coming this Thanksgiving to a theater near you. Absolutely inspired by the Rite of Spring part of Fantasia, this was originally going to be wordless and a story told through visual language, just like Disney's Inferior Dinosaur would be 12 years later. That was the one that came out in 2000. The first one, if you recall, it was the one we talked about the Land Before Time when we covered this, but uh, they used real-life vistas, real uh, backgrounds of uh, uh, landscapes, and then they pasted onto that uh, CGI dinosaurs and CGI monkeys and kind of made a plot out of it. It's nowhere near as good as this. Kind of like that Lion King remake. Land Before Time became a franchise in 1994, spanning 13 straight-to-video sequels and a TV show. Jenny Nicholson watched all of those, so you should check her video on the Land Before Time series out, because we sure as doggy hell are not going to. But what the 1988 original has going for it, despite skewing, once again, very young, is a palpable sense of grief that Disney had not to date mustard in decades as well as this a very important message for children all of the kids in the film are taught by their parents to not associate with other breeds of dinosaur this is received racism and the fact that they all overcome their differences even though they dislike each other uh, well a couple of them dislike each other to begin with uh, they make it to their goal at the end together and that gives great weight to how harmful and ignorant what they were taught originally is. There is something haunting about this film as well. It grows more poignant every year. The dinos are facing the end of their time, and the adults are unable to overcome their own prejudices and differences, and so they die in droves, while the young find a way around these insurmountable obstacles. And they hold on to, not their literal parents, but an internal guiding voice that keeps them on the right path together. 
Their version of Earth is fragile and sweet and sad, and green fertility has become rare and precious. This film could easily bring out existential dread if you watch it now. In particular, the fact that the the end of the film leans on a narration that says they found this valley and there was food for everybody forever and everything would always be wonderful. But they all went looking, to live on a farm. You're looking at dinosaurs. You know that's not how this story ends. Yeah, no. 13 sequels is how it ends. <laughs> and counting. More sequels. Like I, that I that, that means that down. the kids who first watched Land Before Time in the theatres are 40 and showing the 14th film to their grandkids. Mm. So maybe <laughs> the Land Before Time segues into an alternate universe where the dinosaurs never got wiped out. Maybe. So Disney's dinosaur? No, no, wait, wait. Pixar's The Worst Dinosaur, what was it called? The Littlest Dinosaur? The Stupidest Dinosaur? The Fradiest Dinosaur? The Creepiest Dinosaur? I don't remember. The Weirdest Dinosaur? The Good Dinosaur? That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) He is all of those things. (laughs) He does nothing but scream. Anyway, um, Kat, what was your experience like with The Land Before Time? So, to kind of build on what you said there, uh, uh... I was born the year this movie came out. Now so, I feel old. <laughs> I remember the Pizza Hut promotions. I'd never even been to a Pizza Hut at the time. Okay, go. You get, that's like, exactly what puppets. my husband said, too, because he's, he's, he's fairly older than me, and so he, he immediately was like, I remember when this was on, on Pizza Hut. I'm like, nice. Oh, <laughs> so sure. someone, I didn't just imagine it. Okay, cool. You didn't, no. In the new movie, The Land Before Time, Littlefoot, Sarah, Ducky, and Spike share an incredible journey. Along the way, they become best friends. Now we'll always be together. And now these lovable characters can be your child's friends too. With a pizza from Pizza Hut, a Land Before Time dinosaur is only 99 cents. So come to Pizza Hut. Your friends are waiting. We'll always be together. Pizza Hut! I think every kid goes through a dinosaur phase, mm. um, which is why they made a million sequels to this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to catch the next group of kids going through a dinosaur phase. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I wrote, I, I made a similar joke in my notes where it, the line was, "And they all grew up in the valley, generation after generation, telling the story of their ancestors' journey to the valley long ago." Mm. And I'm um, like, until the meteor strikes, <laughs> they all die. Yeah, but also. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. You can sit through the 53 sequels. <laughs> um, yeah, this was one that we watched a lot. Unlike An American Tale, I distinctly remember mostly only watching the first one. We never really got into the sequels. Um, and I remember it was one of those, we, we started to watch it, and the soundtrack hits for when Littlefoot's mom dies. Mm. And my brain just goes, oh, I do know this soundtrack. I know this soundtrack very well, because I am suddenly incredibly weepy. Yeah. James Horner really brought the thunder. <laughs> he did. They uh, they started with um, Jerry Goldsmith on Secret of Nim, then James Horner for American Tale, and then this. They effectively went the same route as Alien which uh, was Goldsmith, then Aliens was Horner, and Star Trek, which was the first film was Goldsmith, the second film was Horner. It's it's kind of astonishing that that's the given order you go to them in Hollywood. But the death scene in particular that is handled extremely well here, it's... They uh, they originally, again, this was going to be wordless, and they brought in a child psychologist and said, look, can we show kids this scene? Will it be... Will they be okay? And the child psychologist said, yes... 
if the mother is not immediately forgotten and they are told that this is part of life and that she will always be with you in a way. Mm. Yeah, I really like the way that was framed, actually, because the, the, the fact that it's, if you remember what she taught you, she'll always be with you, mm. that, to me, feels a lot more honest than she's gone to a better place and she'll be looking down on you or, mm. or something along those lines. So you mean exactly yeah. what Mufasa said about the uh, stars? <laughs> There's quite a bit of Lion King in this, folks. Or quite a bit of this Mufasa, in Lion King. Mufasa's dead. Yeah. Mufasa's already dead. There's no, I'm going to have a conversation with my mom and she's having to deal with the fact that she's dying while also trying to say words to comfort me oh, so that God, I can yeah. try and live through this. Yeah. It's... Similarly, it's Bambi's mom just... I it as a kid. Yeah, it's... Bambi's mom just goes out like a light. There's no talking with him afterwards, you're right. But the, there are metaphors yeah. in Bambi that are supposed to convey that. It's just that they, there isn't the narrative tissue to tie them together. You've got the, the whole spring thing is new life comes from mm. death, and that's the, the circle of life thing that... that is underpinning that kind of story. But it's so syrupy and so forced that I always reject the film at that Indeed, point. Indeed, yeah. It's Again, it's this sort of sharp right-angle turn out of we can't let our kids be sad for too long. We must jolly them up and make them all cheerful and I am very familiar with people doing that now. For reference, this is Bambi. Literally 78 seconds later. It's not too late to watch a film about a happy little elf. Indeed. This is The Land Before Time. Sarah was on one side of the divide. Her parents were on the other. Mother? Mother? 
What's going on here? What's your problem? You're not hurt. It's not fair. She should have known better. That was a sharp tooth. It's all her fault. All whose fault? Mother's. I see. Why did I wander so far from home? Oh, it's not your fault. It's not your mother's fault. Now, you pay attention, old rooter. Yeah. But it is nobody's fault. The great circle of life has begun. But you see, not all of us arrive together at the end. What will I do? I miss her so much. And you'll always miss her. But she'll always be with you. As long as you remember the things she taught you. In a way, you'll never be apart. For you are still a part of each other. My tummy hurts. Well, that too will go in time, little fella. Only in time. This sort of underpins what I was saying earlier about Bluth having a difficult uh, time with tone shifts. Specifically here, the tone shift is much better and smoother and more effective, and he got somebody else to help him with it. I think if if his productions suffer from anything, it's his sense of, I can do this all myself. When he's obviously been proven not to. Yeah. You have a skill set, Don. It's a great skill set, but you can't do everything. The last films he did, uh, Anastasia and Titan AE, were not his studio. He was effectively recruited by existing studios that wanted him to head up their projects. Mm. And I I was uh, barely technically a kid when my dad died. Um, But what you said about, like, how they phrase it to kids, man, (laughs) the things people say to you when a parent dies sometimes is mind-bogglingly tone-deaf. It's a lot of like, oh, you know, I remember nothing led me farther. I I, I was raised Catholic. I wasn't like a very devout Catholic, but I went to CCD and we did the, the church things. I hit 18, my dad died, and at least three people from the church goes, well, God had a plan. And I was like, well, then God can eat it because <laughs> this is the worst. Immediately turns you off of religion. <laughs> like This isn't comforting. You know, I, I have like five phrases that you always hear when you go through grief, and I avoid them whenever I have a friend who goes, who loses somebody. I always tell everyone else, I'm like, if you reach out to them, do not say you know what they're going through, because you don't. Don't say God has a plan or that it's part of a plan or these things happen. Like, just say that you have sympathy for their pain and you are there to talk if they want to talk at you. By the way, if one more person wishes me strength on my healing journey, I'm going to throw a balloon full of piss into every candle store on the planet because it it is not a healing journey. Uh, And calling it a healing journey makes it harder, by the way. When when it's 4 a.m. and I'm in the backyard crying and looking at the sky in my underwear, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like, I think I'm fucking up my healing journey right now. (laughs) If they would call it a numb slog, then I could at least go, hey, I'm nailing it. All right, I'm right where I need to be on my numb slog. 
And it also, it, 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 it just, there's no sense to it. It doesn't have, and that was my, you know, my, my wife was a, a true crime writer and researcher, and her, the phrase she hated the most was, you know, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> and she's like, no, it fucking doesn't. It's chaos. It's all random, and it's horrifying. And if you want to try to reduce the horror and reduce the chaos, be kind. That's all you can do. It's chaos, be kind. She would just say that, oh, it's chaos, be kind. Now, I would always, we'd have these huge philosophical arguments where I was like, I don't believe in a, in a intelligent uh, creator per se, but I think that there might be a, a lattice work of logic and meaning to the universe that maybe we're too small to see. And she's like, sweetie, it's all random. It's all chaos. It's chaos. Be kind. It's chaos. Be kind. And then we would go back and forth. And then she won the argument in the shittiest way possible. <laughs> Everything else is just cliched, and they'll hear it a million times, and by the time they hear it the tenth, they'll be mad about it. Yeah. Uh, you can also add to that, if, you're, if they're English, don't say, cheer up, it might never happen. Oh, In a God. kind of a chirpy way that invites punches. <laughs> no. That's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. But it did happen, and if I strangle you a bit right now, I'm the asshole. But yeah, I agree with what you said. I think that they by bringing a psychologist in to kind of talk about how to handle it so that these kids can move forward with the rest of the movie and not be just super dramatized. Mm -hmm. It's why we have that one random adult dinosaur who then walks off and doesn't help these kids at all. Yeah, he's like, well, it's 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 Pat Hingle. He's the narrator. This was Commissioner Gordon in Batman. He was like, you know, and then Littlefoot, he left his his mother lying there, and but he 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 knew he was going to go on and 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 carry on, and I, I believe my job here is done. So off I go. <laughs> Only call me back in if I have to explain why Sarah's upset at this point, because it feels like she'd be upset for a number of reasons. But if you really need me to zero in on it, I can. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> who, who was it that killed Littlefoot's mother? Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Tone shift. A, well, indeed. There, there is another nice symbolic touch with regards to that as well, and what you said about the they don't reconnect with their literal parents for, in all of their cases. In some of them they do, but there's this You'd think that their that grandparents would be even more racist. Well, indeed. Uh, but they, <laughs> they Did I show you that thing on Facebook, Littlefoot? Yes, yes, you did. <laughs> They internalize. They don't play a, by our rules. Don't you find that? <laughs> they, they internalize a uh, a parental guidance that can get them to where they need to be without necessarily having to have that parent literally there with them. And the leaf that Littlefoot is given the by star leaf, well, yeah. he's not even given it by his mother. It just it falls down from the tree, mm. and this is like the last leaf in the area that they're they're fleeing. Mm. And she explains to him that it's a tree star and that it's this is the thing that they're searching for. And he wears it on his head or on his back like for most of the story. And that's the thing that sort of he's clinging to as this is what I'm looking for. Mm. And then once they have their group of five all together, the leaf... I think it gets it gets wet or he rolls in the mud or something and the leaf it gets crumbles. Stomped on yeah, by it. the uh, T Rex. 
Indeed. But but and then they go through this sort of the, the running away from the T-Rex. But the point being that after that has occurred, the five of them are now very solidly bonded together, which represents the five points on the leaf. Mm. And now Littlefoot has that with him, which is something else that's symbolic of what he's moving towards. Honestly, some of the actual absolute best stuff. I really like the fact that this is narrated because just a little bit of narration can kind of I, I, I made fun of Pat Hingle, but he does a really good job in this. Mm. Um, it, it gets you where you need to be so that then you can just watch the rest of it play out visually. The scene where Littlefoot doesn't go and huddle up and sleep with the rest of them, but goes and lies on his own inside a little, uh, a giant footprint. And then one by one, they come and, and snuggle up with him is so, it's heartbreaking to watch. And then uh, the, the, the cusp of it comes when Sarah wakes up, realizes that nobody's with her anymore. And she starts shivering in the cold. And it takes a lot for her to go and, and, and move in and, and lay down. It's it just there's there's stuff going on in this movie which was not really in the last two. This is most definitely my favourite of the three. It's very accomplished in how it's telling its story visually. They've they've had enough practice to do so, and I think they always had in their minds let's make it as expressive as possible. Also, it's not mice or dog or cats for a bit. You know, just like it goes cat <laughs> mouse mouse dinosaur. Now we're talking and. There's just little things like uh, when they're in a cave, there's color of the, uh, the the dinosaur's hue changes to illustrate uh, a, a change in light. Sarah goes from being orange to being kind of a pale gray, and that goes that makes them feel more real, like they're affected by the light. It's it's extremely good stuff to look at there. It's also really short. It's like sixty nine minutes long, and uh, I think like. You probably wouldn't be able to release a film now for that's not quite even 70 minutes. You'd need to put at least a short at the beginning. But uh, it fairly whips along as a result. Like it never, it's, it, it's never maudlin. And the sharp tooth, they do a really good job of conveying that it's the same one each time because he's missing an eye and he's just got this one big glaring red eye. So it's this one Rex that's just making their lives miserable. And it's frightening and weirdly acrobatic for a dinosaur of that size as well. It's like leaping on the mother. Well, and unlike like Secret of Nim and a little bit, an American Tales, kind of like the middle ground. Like the T Rex is just doing what T Rexes do. Yeah, it's an animal. Like there's, yeah, he's just, he's just trying to eat. Um, you know, in Secret of Nim, like the bad guys are like characters doing bad things for personal gain. And a little bit in in an American tale, like they're cats and cats are going to eat mice. But also there's, uh, you know, there's some machinations and stuff. And in Land Before Time, the bad guy is just the environment. Like it's just just the world is trying to kill kill these little kids. I think that's why they're able to kind of keep it so tight. And their the story is so much more interesting. It's because you're not having to try and like shoehorn in a villain. It's just watching these people go through a journey and exist in this kind of scary, hostile world. Mm. Yeah, actually, the, the Disney's Dinosaur, they, it, they kind of made it, uh, it's a procession, and there's the one general at the front saying they've got to keep moving, got to keep moving. And if the uh, stragglers at the back don't keep moving, just let them die. Let them die back there. It's survival of the fittest, and the fittest means the most physically strong. Keep moving. And it's it's a really difficult scenario to to see your way out of because they do need momentum it just needs to be in the right direction and he's not flexible enough to take new information on and readjust where they're going mm. he also misses the fact that if you 
are trying to uh, sort of, if you have a group, if you sacrifice the the young and the weak and the elderly and the, the all the people who are going to be at the back of this group unable to keep up with you, what have you got when you get there? You don't have your group anymore. It's it's you and the half a dozen individuals that were able to keep up with you. Yeah. And by by not having by having the bad guy or they're not being like a villain, right? Like the sharp tooth is just doing sharp tooth things. It allows you to less have to spend time dwelling when you think about like the motivations of the villain and more about how, you know, the fact that three horns don't talk to long necks and that kind of an er- inherent racism that these kids have to kind of get over to move forward together. Um, you're able to focus a lot more on that and how those views hamper them at the beginning. Like they'd be able to get through this a lot better if they'd have just started by trusting each other. And um, you can, I think there's a little more meat to that when there's not a, you know, a big bad guy that you have to kind of contradict. It's just, Nope, you have to get through this world and you got to kind of work with each other even if you're not alike. And maybe your differences will help you get through that. Okay, folks, um, I'm going to give you a warning here because what I'm about to say is going to be, I think, the heaviest thing I've ever had to discuss on uh, School of Movies. So if you are not in the mood for a very deeply sad situation involving children, uh, then uh, stop the podcast now and put put us away maybe come back to this later if you're in a different mood but um yeah i've got to push on with this because it matters and that's what happened to judith barcy (sighs) do you know this cat yeah i knew this one I, i figured this was coming yeah um i think i may have mentioned it before i definitely wrote it in a quick review i did once but this it needs it needs space and it needs weight um judith was the girl who plays ducky in this Hello. I said hello. What is your name? (gasps) Maybe you cannot talk yet, huh? Huh? Don't you know anything? Long necks don't talk to whatever you are. Me? I'm a long neck too, see? And I have a long tail like you. (laughs) All right. I'm not a long neck, I'm a big mouth. But I am all alone, I am. I lost my family in the big earth shake. Um, you wanna go with me? Yeah! Oh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I do, I do. (laughs) All right, come on. But you'll have to keep up. I will keep up, I will. Where are we going? To the Great Valley. I'm not going to stop until I find my grandparents. Uh, do you think my family went to the Great Valley too? Huh? Hmm, maybe. My mother said it's where all the herds were going. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. <clears throat> my name's Littlefoot. Mine is Tucky. Yep, that is what it is. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
She was the lead uh, little girl in All Dogs Go to Heaven, which we also watched today just to remind ourselves what it was like and whether the tone shifts were worse in that than they were in the others. It's way worse. Um, And there are... She died uh, under very tragic circumstances uh, during the tail end of production of The Land Before Time, and they dedicated All Dogs Go to Heaven to her a year after. But she's a little girl searching for her family in All Dogs, and she's like, you know, praying, praying for a good mom and dad to come and uh, help her. And her actual family situation was horrendous. She was, uh, she began. Uh, Maria Barsi began preparing her daughter. I'm just going to read off of Wikipedia on this one. Maria Barsi became, began preparing her daughter to become an actress when Judith was five. So she was born in 78. That would have been like 83. Uh, so it's one of those, you're going to be an actress situations where she was just kind of shunted into the position. And, you know, if a kid really, really wants to be an actress and you want to give them those opportunities, that's great. Uh, I, I don't know whether that was the case with, uh, with Judith here. Um, uh, by the time she started fourth grade, Barcy was earning an estimated 100000 per year, uh, which helped her family buy a three-bedroom house in West Hills, Los Angeles. As she was short for her age, she began receiving hormone injections at UCLA to encourage her growth. Her petiteness led casting directors to cast her as children that were younger than her actual age. As Barcy's career succeeded, her father, Joseph, an alcoholic, became increasingly angry and would routinely threaten to kill himself, his wife, and his daughter. His drinking led to three arrests for drunk driving. In December 1986, so uh, same year as just a month after American Tale launched, Maria reported his threats and physical violence towards her to the police. After the police found no physical signs of abuse, she decided not to press charges against him. Remember that bit, folks, for the rest of your lives. After the incident with the police, Joseph reportedly stopped drinking but continued to threaten Maria and Judith. His various threats included cutting their throats as well as burning down the house. He also repeatedly hid a telegram informing Maria that a relative in Hungary had died in an attempt to prevent her from leaving the United States with Judith, clearly fearing that they would never come back to him. The physical violence continued with Barsi telling a friend that her father threw pots and pans at her, resulting in a nosebleed. As a result of her abuse, Barsi began gaining weight and developed compulsive behaviours such as plucking out her eyelashes and pulling out her cat's whiskers. In May 1988, after breaking down in front of her agent, Ruth Hansen, Barcy was taken by Maria to a child psychologist who identified severe physical and emotional abuse and reported her findings to Child Protective Services. Remember that for the rest of your life, folks. The investigation was dropped after Maria assured the caseworker that she intended to begin divorce proceedings against Joseph the investigation was dropped and that she and Judith were going to move into a Panorama City apartment she had recently rented as a daytime haven from Joseph. Maria's friends urged her to follow through with the plan, but she hesitated due to her fear of losing the family home and belongings. Remember that, folks, for the rest of your lives. On July 28, 1988, the LA Times reported that three people were found dead in an apparent murder-suicide I originally read the details at this point, but I'm going to spare you the specificity. Barcy and her mother were buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in adjoining plots. 
Farsi's final film, Will Dogs Go to Heaven, in which she provided the speaking voice of Anne-Marie, was released posthumously in November 1989. That would have been about a year after her death. In an interview, Don Bluth, the director of both The Land Before Time and All Dogs Must Go to Heaven, praised her as being absolutely astonishing. She was. She understood verbal direction even for the most sophisticated situations. Bluth stated he intended to feature her exclusively in his future productions. The closing credits song, Love Survives, was dedicated to her memory. That's one of the things that pissed me off the most about All Dogs Go to Heaven, is it ends in this remarkably solemn way with the dog actually going to a, a serious heaven as opposed to the goofball heaven he first starts in and it should have been kept mysterious and then he goes why is everyone so sad and it's fucking Burt Reynolds and he starts some ragtime music and I'm like fucking tell a child has been murdered can we just not for a bit Charlie yeah it's me how you feeling kid okay how are you well <laughs> I come to say goodbye where are you going? Ah, it's on a little trip. Listen, Squeaker, I want you to do something for me, all right? Uh-huh. I want you to take care of Itchy. You know, just while I'm gone. You got a home now, and he doesn't have anybody. Don't worry, Charlie, I will. Great. Well, <clears throat> goodbye, little buddy. Oh, Charlie, I'll miss you. you too, Squeaker. Now you, you go to sleep, huh? Charlie, will I ever see you again? Sure. Sure you will, kid. You know, goodbyes aren't forever. Then, goodbye, Charlie. I love you. that I have internalized this as one of the most horrific things you could possibly imagine, whatever your age, is that it's not worth being skeptical when a woman says, I'm being threatened. It is really important for the first instinct to be trust. That's all. That's all. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to read. And there's a melancholy to A Land Before Time as a result of that. Uh, James Horner is now dead. Pat Hingle is dead. Judith Barcy is dead. And very soon, the currently 77-year-old Diana Ross, who sang the uh, song, 
and the 84-year-old Don Bluth will join them. Steven Spielberg took away the dinosaurs and made Jurassic Park. Disney nabbed and repurposed the parental loss and grief and word for word the great circle of life mentioned in this film to make The Lion King one of the greatest films of all time. Not only one of the greatest animated films, one of the greatest films of all time. They then definitely filched the wholesale concept of The Land Before Time for their lame, forgettable Dinosaur 2000. But after all that, what can we learn? Aside from believe women who say they're being abused and believe children who are clearly very upset. Spielberg went off to make his own dinosaur films. Sullivan Bluth filed for yet another bankruptcy after the box office failures of All Dogs Go to Heaven and Rock-A-Doodle, especially that cockerel picture. It cost $18 million and it only made $11 million, so it lost $7 million. Don just kept on going, though. He doggedly made yet more animated movies. He had to. He lost, respectively, $11 million for Thumbelina. He lost an undisclosed amount for A Troll in Central Park, which a lot of people consider to be his worst film. The Pebble and the Penguin was the worst. It cost $28 million to make, and it made less than $4 million. And this was during Disney's 90s third renaissance. They were accomplishing wonders unmatched before and, frankly, since. And I will say right now that an essential component of the heights that Disney reached was the competition that Bluth presented. They had gone uncontested for decades and they had settled into a very directionless slump that caused Don to leave and do his own thing. In 1988, when The Land Before Time competed strongly with Oliver and Company at the box office after both were launched on the same day, November 18th, it was a big deal. The dinos cost $12 million and they made $84 million. The orphaned kitten made $161 million, but it cost nearly three times as much at $31 million, which means that the profit was higher for the Bluth company. But a few years prior, Disney flung $44 million into the Black Cauldron and only got $21 million back. While the year after, An American Tale turned $9 million into $84 million. Reducing it to a numbers game is oversimplifying matters, but this is what the money men pay attention to, and it's what people like that plays into those numbers directly. Disney absolutely had to up their game. They made Basil the Great Mouse Detective, they made Oliver and Company, and eventually they struck exactly the right chord with The Little Mermaid in 1989, kicking off their golden age. Uh, a slight misstep with uh, Rescuers Down Under, which was in fact the last of the old rather than the first of the new, because uh, it was put out up against Home Alone. Couldn't possibly beat that kid. But then they put out Beauty and the Beast. That's, by the way, what Rock-A-Doodle was up against. The, the Elvis cockerel. I think we're now at a point where I don't think people who put out media or, or animation think that kids like Elvis anymore. Like, they get that it's just for the... Well, it's not just for the grandparents, but largely it's going to be folks who still have Facebook pages. And as Disney stepped up, Don ran out of success. His journey through the 90s was one of financial and critical failure, with a brief triumphant stop off for Anastasia before crumbling into Titan AE. The super expensive animated space opera of a kind that nobody wanted to see, much like Disney would soon find out with the aforementioned Treasure Planet. And in that time, Pixar had risen to prominence as the kind of studio that people wanted the films of, even more than Disney. And as 3D animation rose to prominence, more and more companies tried their hand. Disney no longer held absolute dominion over cinematic Western animation. 
but they wouldn't have accomplished nearly as much without Bluth lighting a fire under them. Put simply, Disney were compelled to be better. We got those wonderful animated experiences because they were going for greatness again. This is the best argument I could ever put forward against monopolies. Complete control breeds complacency. But what Bluth, accompanied with his sensibilities of turning money into art rather than art into commerce, what he accomplished was a series of films that mean the world to those who saw them at just the right time in their lives. To bring that delight, as well as to help Disney be all they could be, is more than most artists could ask to achieve in their lifetime. Which is why I would consider Don's passage to be ultimately a victory in disguise. Don't lose your-